you have a Bible, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and as you're doing that, I just want to say a great, great big thank you um, for our tech team, our worship team. You know, uh, again, COVID has been just a crazy year, and when we were hit with COVID and had to shut down the church, and we had to quickly get ourselves up and rolling and streaming live, and our tech team, I mean, they spent many, many hours here getting things ready and they have worked diligently um, in making an improvements to our live stream and just doing an incredible job. Our worship team has just brought incredible worship experiences for us through these uh, last many, many months. And so I can't say um, enough thank yous for all that you've done and all the sacrifices you've made. And certainly uh, I thank uh, Caleb. He has had to spend a lot of hours. Um, you know, he's only part-time here, right? So he spent a lot more hours than part-time keeping our worship services going and keeping the technology up to, to date and all that he does. So let's give him a round of applause and say thank you. All right, so this is uh, the final message in this series, and the title of this message is The Gift of the Gospel. And we spent this entire month um, talking about the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus that displayed him as our king, as our high priest, as well as our suffering servant. And the, this is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. In Adam, I was unfit for heaven. But now I'm in Christ, and Jesus made me fit for heaven. In Adam, I was spiritually dead. In Christ, I've been made spiritually alive. In Adam, I had no hope. In Christ, I have all hope. In Adam, I was spiritually separated from God, but now I'm spiritually alive. I was once living according to my flesh, not according to the spirit. I was living according to my own personal lustful desires. I was not living according to God's desires for my life. Jesus was not my shepherd. He was not the king of my heart. I was living for me. I was living for self, just like many of you were living for you. You were living for self, and we knew that our eternal destiny hung in the balance. We may not have known or been aware as to what that destiny might have been, but we knew that there's something beyond life because God has put into us eternity, and we just know there's something out there, although we're not sure maybe what it is. And so now... In Christ, my greatest desire is to live for Jesus. I know that this body will one day be put in a grave, but it does not matter. I do not fear death because death is simply the doorway that gains me entrance into the presence of Jesus for all of eternity. Amen? So that is the essence of the gospel. That, and Romans 1.16 says this gospel that we've been talking about all month, it is the power of God unto salvation. And that salvation is the power to save in Adam, now in Christ, and all the transition that took place as a result of that transfer of kingdoms out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It is the power to heal, to heal my sin-filled soul, and to replace it with things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness, the fruits of the Spirit has the power to deliver us from addiction, from anxiety, from um, depression, from satanic oppression. The gospel has been given to us as a gift just because the gospel speaks of Jesus. Jesus is the essence of that gift, Jesus in my place. And this gospel that has been entrusted into our care as a gift, Jesus said, before he ascended back into heaven. Now, I want you to take this gospel to the entire world. I want you to spread the gospel around the entire world because it is the power of God for salvation, for healing, and for deliverance. And that's been put in our hands. It's the mission of the church. That's why I believe, as I was praying, and, and God says, let's get back to the priority of the mission. The priority of the mission is to be gospel-centered, to be gospel-oriented, a gospel reset, so, so to speak. We need to do whatever we have to do to reach people. 
And we are called to make disciples, not just converts, because a disciple is one who just doesn't want to know what their master said. They also want to know what he did, because we want to do what it is that Jesus did. And what Jesus did is that he took the gospel across his territory as he was going, as he says to us, as we are going in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in my school, wherever it is I am going, I bring the essence of Christ into the atmosphere in which I find myself. So as the Spirit of God is living through us and the essence of the fruit of the Spirit is being evidence, you're bringing that fruitfulness into the atmosphere in which you find yourself with other people so that other people will take notice and say, tell me, what is the reason behind the hope that you have? And that's what 1 Peter 3.18 says, right? We, we ought to be prepared to give it an answer for the hope that is within us. Now, every year, many, many people, you may not, but many people make New Year's resolutions. And most of the New Year's resolutions that are made are made surrounding some kind of self-improvement. You know, I want to stop biting my nails or I want to, you know, whatever it is that you want to improve in your life. And oftentimes we make those resolutions. But the problem with the resolutions are, as you know, uh, it takes a lot of willpower to do those things, and our willpower is very weak, and so by February, it kind of just like muddles, uh, you know, just kind of, it's, it's just non-existent anymore. Like, for example, you know, I, I go to the rec center here in Groveport, and always in January, people have made resolutions, I'm going to get in better shape, I'm going to get in better health, and so I go to the gym, and it's, it's cr very crowded, much more than normal. And then, you know, it's that way through January. Then by February, the crowd begins to thin. And by March, it's right back to where it, it always was because people made resolutions that they found themselves uh, that they could not keep because it was sheer willpower that was trying to fuel that fire, that flame that was in them. And we need more than just willpower. And so we're going to talk about some resolutions these are resolutions that Moses himself made that absolutely changed the course of his life. And not only did it change the course of his life, but God used him in a very powerful way in the same way that God wants to use you. Uh, whether you realize it or not, God really wants to use you in 2021. And I believe one of the ways he wants to use us is through the gospel reset that we are taking the gospel to those who are around us. And so... I put this on the top of your outline. Resolution is a, a firm determination to do something, right? I'm determined I'm going to do this, which that's just based on willpower. So most of the cosmetic changes we're trying to make is sheer willpower. But to resolve something means to decide, to settle, to determine. In other words, it is a choice that is made. So there are some choices that we need to make in life that will help us change our lives. And in, rather than trusting in willpower to get this done, we need to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the advantage you have as a follower of Jesus. You are indwelt by the Spirit who is the power of God. And it's the dunamis, you know, the dynamite, the power of God. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the explosion in Nashville, but you can tell that when something is powerful and it explodes, I mean, it, it leaves devastation. Well, we want to explode in power in a positive way, in a good way, in a helpful way, and that is to bring the gospel into the atmosphere in which we find ourselves. So this year, I want to challenge you to make a New Year's, not a New Year's resolution surrounding self-improvement, but a New Year's resolution surrounding gospel improvement. For without the gospel, people are lost. It doesn't matter how much good we do as a church. It doesn't matter if, you know, we give poverty relief and you're engaged in social active activism, good business practices, kindness towards your neighbors or immigrants or those who are oppressed. It doesn't matter how, you know, our stance on marriage and morality and all those, those things are all fine and well. They're all good. They're all ways to love your neighbor as Christ calls us to love them. It's a good way to glorify God. But if you do not intersect those things, if you do not bring to the table the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, it doesn't matter. I might help a person live better in this life, but if they die without Christ, what have they gained? Nothing. 
And the Bible reminds us of the lostness of humanity. And it is our calling, it is our responsibilities as the carriers of the gift of the gospel to always bring that to the table when we are interacting with people. I do not mean to do that in a harsh way, not in a way that is belligerent, but I'm going to show you how God uses your own unique personality, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, and he can interweave the gospel through those things as you do that naturally, not in a, in a cold-hearted way. One of the greatest gifts that God has given to us is the freedom to choose, and so uh, we, we make choices all the time. This is what differentiates us from the animal world is that we have free moral choice. The problem with our greatest gift is that it can also become our greatest curse, right? We don't always make the right choices. We don't always do the right things. So often we waste the power that God has given to us through the choices that we make. So today, I want to look at four of the most important choices that you will make in 2021. And you can filter everything through these four choices because they will absolutely revolutionize your life if you will settle these issues in your life and if you will think about these things and allow God to pour himself into you concerning these things. And we're gonna look at these, these choices through the life of Moses in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Remember Moses is the one that God chose to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years. It was Moses that gave us the Ten Commandments who wrote the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. Why did God use him in such an amazing way? Because Moses made four resolutions, four choices that helped to guide and control and to give direction to his life. So let's pick it up in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What was the king's, king's edict? Remember, Pharaoh was concerned because the Hebrew slaves were beginning to outnumber the Egyptians. So out of fear, he said to the midwives, if a male child is born to the Hebrew slave women, you must kill it. You, you must drown it in the Nile. Well, um, obviously, Moses' parents, they weren't afraid of the king's edict, so they hid him for three months, and then he was placed in a basket, placed in the Nile, sent down the Nile. And of course, Pharaoh's daughter retrieves Moses out of the Nile River, and as God would have it, she needed someone to nurse this child, and guess who she got? Moses' mother, Jochebed. And what do you think she did during those, those months of nursing Moses? She poured into him who he was, his identity, where he came from. And it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Well, who's invisible? Who did he see? God, right? This, this relationship with his creator. Now, I want you to notice in this text, it says Moses by faith, and then it uses four verbs, and these four verbs are really the four points that I'm going to draw off of as we make four choices or resolutions for our lives. It's the word refused, he chose, he regarded, and he persevered. Remember, it says by faith, when he'd grown up, he refused to be known as the Pharaoh's, son of the Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for God for the sake of, of Christ as greater value. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So what are the four life-changing choices that you and I need to make? Number one is I refuse. My resolution is I refuse to be defined by others. I refuse to be defined by others. Listen, this may set some of you free. God did not make you to be what somebody else wants you to be. God made you to be who he created you to be, right? 
it, God didn't create you to be what your parents want you to be, what your girlfriend or boyfriend wants you to be, what your spouse wants you to be. God created you to, to what he wanted you to be for the purpose of which he has created you the way that he has. Um, if you're going to become all you can, all you can be, you have to come to the point in your life that you, you refuse to be defined by others. Now, Moses, in verse 24, has hit an identity crisis, right? He was born as a Hebrew slave. He's put into the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter retrieves him, and now he is raised in Egyptian royalty. He is the grandson of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was considered to be God, and this Pharaoh was overseeing the largest and most powerful empire in their known world. Moses is the grandson, which means he is one day heir to the throne. And that decision is, you know, who am I going to be is, is, is going to affect him. He grows up and he decides at some point he says, you know what? Who am I really? I mean, I, I know where I've been raised, but this is really my, my true beginning is that I, I was born back here as a Hebrew slave, even though I'm being raised in the luxury of the Pharaoh's palace. And that began to bother him. So he had one of two choices to make. He could either pretend to be Pharaoh's grandson for the rest of his life and live in luxury. I mean, I'm everything that he would ever, could have ever wanted, desired, wished for, hoped for, would have been at his disposal. I mean, once you think about the magnitude of this decision. He could have lived that way the entire life, one day probably sitting on the throne, being worshiped as a God, or he can admit who he really is. He was, he's really a Hebrew slave. And if he admits that, he knows that at this point, he's kicked out of Pharaoh's palace. And now he's going to have to live as a slave the rest of his life. He's going to be disgraced and humiliated, and he's going to have to live a life of pain and sorrow and drudgery for the rest of his life as a slave to the Pharaoh's whims. Now, let's be honest. Which would you choose? Come on. <laughs> this is a tough choice. Huh? Show me the money. Here you go. Moses, being a man of integrity, refused to live the lie. And many people today are, are living a lie. They're not really living who God created them to be. They're trying to be who they're not because they're trying to live their life through the life of somebody else. Maybe it's somebody who's famous. Maybe it's an athlete, a, a, a star, whatever it might be. Um, they're trying to impress people with their highlight reel on Facebook when in, in actuality their life is an absolute mess. And uh, it might be that, you know, they, they're trying to live out um, the identity that somebody else has placed upon them or the expectations or the desires that they have for the, your life. And this can be a parent can do that. It, it can be somebody who's very significant in your life. Or it might be that you're trying to fit into a peer group, a group of friends, and so you're allowing them to define you and you're kind of adjusting yourself. You're not really being really who you are. You're being like they want you to be because you're looking for their approval. And in reality, they don't really care about you because if they really cared about you, they'd accept you as you are, not as they want you to be in order to gain their approval. But this is the way people live their lives over and over and over again. And the bottom line is, it's exhausting. If you try to live who you are not, it's just flat out exhausting. And you can't keep up the charade for long anyways. And it really, most of the time, it ends up creating all kinds of frustration. It, it creates um, anger. Because you're, you're angry that you have to be this way in order to gain somebody's acceptance or approval of your life. And this is the way many people are living. And Moses just came to the point in his life and he says, you know what? Um, this is who I'm, I'm, you know, people are saying I need to be, but this is not who I am. Therefore, I, will, I refuse to allow anyone but God to define me from here on out. So my question for you is, who are you letting Define your identity. Your friends, your parents, your family. Some of you have parents who died years ago, but their voices keep ringing in your mind. 
And you're still trying to live up to, to their identity for you, to, for their expectations, for who they saw that you ought to be and what you should be doing and how you ought to be doing it. And on and on it goes. But again, the problem is not only are you letting someone else control your life, but it, it, again, it's, it's just exhausting when we're trying not to be who God created us to be. And so if you try to keep that up, for example, young people who come into their teenage years, they're trying to find their identity, right? Many people have told them things and you know, placed expectations on them, perhaps. They're trying to find their identity. I remember you know, I have two daughters. They're trying to find their identity, and they're looking at magazines. And the magazines are saying, you, you, you know, if, let me define you. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to wear certain clothes. You've got to have a certain weight. You know, you got to do certain things in order, you know, to be in, to be the, a part of what it is that you ought to be. And so what happens with many young women is that they never feel like they measure up. So Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, and I love it in the Phillips translation. Here's what Paul says. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. I love that. The plan of God for you, that God has for you is good. Why? Because God always keeps your true identity in mind. He knows your personality type. He knows your likes and your dislikes. He knows your natural talents, gifts, and abilities, the things that you have, what you love to do, what you don't like to do. God sees all of those things, and as God is calling you into the gospel and calling you into the ministry of the gospel and sharing that with other, listen, he forms and he fashions it around your identity, how he has created you. You see, not everybody's an extrovert, right? So when I got saved, people were like, you know what? If you love Jesus, you got to go out and knock on a door and tell them about Christ. You're not doing that. You don't love Jesus. Well, that's great if you have a personality type that like you're an extrovert. But for those introverts of, like me, that is like the most fearful thing ever. It's like, I ain't knocking on some stranger's door. Are you kidding me? I don't even like strangers. So <laughs> I don't ever talk to strangers. And so we try to get fitted into a mold that is not us. You know, when I was um, in my previous church, I had a, a secretary. Her name was Linda Clark. And uh, Linda was a little more of an extrovert, but... But the way God gifted her, um, she loved to bake, right? So she took classes on baking cakes and making, you know, different kinds of cakes and, you know, um, not just your normal typical cake, but like my wife, when she turned 40, she made her a coffin and, you know, out of a cake. And so, you know, those kinds of things. So what she did was she's like, you know, um, she invited a lot of women in her neighborhood to come over to her house. One time a week for six weeks, and she says, I'm going to teach you how to, what I've learned in these cake decorating and take cake baking classes. So they showed up. And so every week they got together, they did their thing, and then she had somebody uh, out of our women's department and shared their testimony, just how life was like without Jesus, how they came to find, find Christ. And they did this for six weeks, the end of six weeks. Uh, Linda was a cancer survivor, and um, she shared her testimony and then gave a plan of salvation, invited these women who were lost to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. See how, what God did? God took her identity, and he wrapped the gospel around it and gave her an outlet by which she, keeping within her identity, she could share the gospel of Jesus and see the fruit of that willingness to do so. This is how God operates in our lives. That's what I love. So you, you need to resolve to allow only God to identify, to define your identity. When you know who you are, man, it sets you free from people's disapproval. It's amazing how many people are afraid of other people's criticism, their rejection, their disapproval. Uh, I've been in ministry for 40 years. I've, I've received a lot of criticism over 40 years. And usually people say, well, say something in a kind way, as kind as they can. You know, I really wish you were more like so-and-so. And so usually it's a pastor that they've had in the past. And they, he had some giftings and some, um, you know, personality 
qualities that they love, and I don't have those same giftings or those same personality qualities. And they were saying, you know, if you're just more like so-and-so, and early on in my ministry, I always tried to live up to that, right? I tried to live out somebody else's identity. Uh, again, it not only was it exhausting, but I could never pull it off. That's not who God made me to be. So God gave me certain gifts, talents, and abilities, and he's asked me to operate within the boundaries of those so I don't have to fear the disapproval, the criticism uh, of other people because I simply need to be who God made me to be, right? Same thing is for you. You see, if you live for the approval of others, what you're saying is, I must be liked by you in order to be happy, and both of those things are wrong. I don't have to be liked by you to be happy, I'm telling you. I hope you like me. But if you don't, I'm not going to be unhappy, all right? Because happiness is a choice. It's not dependent upon what other people think about me. I'm going to let God define me. I'm going to live for an audience of one. And if there's something that needs to be checked, if there's something that needs to be corrected in my life, then the Holy Spirit's going to do that, right? So that's the part of the process of growing in our faith and our trust in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to let other people's approval or disapproval shape my life. Real success in life is not being phony or fake, but being exactly who God created you to be. Who is defining your life? Number two. I choose short-term pain for long-term gain. Look what it also says. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. Now, if you have ever played sports or you've ever played an instrument, musical instrument, you know that it takes long hours of practice, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, if somebody come, becomes very proficient at, say, for example, they, re, they reach the level of a concert pianist, in order to get to that level, that means that they have to spend at least, they say, the minimum of 10,000 hours in practice. That means if you're going to dedicate yourself to something that um, enormous, there are other things you have to cut out of your life. Right, so a lot of kids will grow up and say, well, you know, um, my parents, they wanted me to learn piano. I love piano, and I spent a lot of time, but I was so engaged in the piano that, you know, I, I couldn't go out and play with my friends. I couldn't be involved in that game, and I, I didn't get to do a lot of other things because this, is, this was my passion. And so they practiced a lot, and they put in a lot of hard work. No pain, no gain, right? If you're going to be good at anything, you have to choose short-term pain for a long-term gain at anything, at your job, what you do, uh, if you really want to be good and proficient. This same thing is true in relationships, right? If you want to be good in relationships, you, you've got to endure some short-term pain for long-term gain because if you stop working on your relationship, it stops working for you, right? It's work. That's what, this is what really trips couples up. Well, I thought if I found, you know, the, my knight in shining armor that, you know, love would just happen and it would just grow automatically and we would never have to work on that anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. I guarantee you, if you stop working on that, your knight in shining armor is going to be end up being no, but nothing more than an idiot in a tin suit. That's what he's going to do. Why is this resolution important in your life? Here's the reason. Because most of the problems in your life come from your inability, your inability to delay gratification. Most of the problems that people have in their lives come as the result of their inability to delay gratification. Everything in society teaches us, I want everything, I want it now, I want it free, and I want it easy. Does that sound familiar? You know, like right now, it's, you know, the, the big push is to, you know, take every child's school debt, college debt, and just erase it. You know, like, pay for. Well, that's, that's a wonderful concept. That means you and I help pay for that, by the way. Uh, since the government doesn't make money, we give them money. So that means you and I are helping paying their bill. And I, I, I really ha that's really a salty pill for me to swallow because 
I know that when I was in school, like I worked 30 to 40 hours a week all through college, all through graduate school, and I worked full-time as a pastor all through postgraduate school. It can be done. I didn't say it was fun. I didn't say it wasn't painful. It was. It was short-term pain, though, for long-term goals. So, you know, during that 11, almost 12-year span of time, my wife and I had to do without a lot of things. And I mean a lot of things. It's all we could do just to you know, keep a roof over our head and food on our table as we're trying to pay for school. And for a while, both of us were in college at the same time. And the only time we would ever get to eat out, whether we were in college or in seminary, is that a family member from out of state would come and take us somewhere to eat out. That's the only time we got to eat out. And in college, like our dorm, like we had the bottom of a dorm and made for couples. And like right down at the bottom of the hill was this steakhouse. And every day you'd have to smell the aroma of that just coming into you. We couldn't afford to go down there and eat. But I remember when we were in seminary, I had an uncle. His name was Don Partica. And my uncle was a businessman who traveled around the country. And whenever he was in Fort Worth, Texas, which is where I was in seminary, he would come by, he would pick us up, and he would take us to the greatest, most fanciest steakhouse in all of Fort Worth. We thought we died and gone to heaven. I mean, literally. So I had the opportunity to preach my uncle's funeral, part of that funeral, and I, I shared with the family because nobody knew this was going on. Nobody knew he was doing this for us. He didn't tell anybody else. And so I, would, I, you know, I just shared how he would take us out and he would treat us to a meal. And man, we just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And the reason many people are in debt is because of their inability to delay, to delay their gratification. I see it. I have to have it. I want it. I'm going to get it now. Can you afford it? Well, no. Um, do you have the money for it? Well, no. Well, I'll charge it and figure out how to pay for it later. And this is why America is falling off a physical cliff is because our government doesn't know how to delay gratification. We want it all. We want it now. Even though we cannot afford it or pay for it, we'll just print more money, which is the equivalency of my kids saying to me, Daddy, I know you don't have the money. Just go to the bank and get some. You know, it grows on trees. <laughs> so, Delayed gratification. The reason why oftentimes we have spiritual problems is because delayed gratification issues. Would you agree with me that it is usually the right thing to do is not the easy thing to do? That when the Bible challenges us to do the right thing, it's not always the easy thing. For example, if somebody hurts you and hurts you deeply... And immediately, you know, that root of bitterness springs up inside of you, and now you're starting to hold a grudge, and that anger turns into resentment, and resentment to bitterness, and bitterness into unforgiveness. And you're confronted by the Word of God that says we're to forgive others just as Christ forgave us, but I don't want to forgive. It's hard. You're right. It is hard. It is hard to forgive people. Because you, you who are doing the forgiving, you have to absorb the cost of that forgiveness. And so we, it, because it's hard, we just say, well, you know what? But I really, I don't want to forgive. I don't want to let this pain go. I want to review it. I want to rehearse it. I want to keep a ledger in my mind of all the wrongs they've done. I want to hold a grudge. It's just too hard to forgive. And here's what happened with Moses. He had to make a choice. So rather he would enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time, it says, because sin is fun, it's pleasurable. The Bible admits that, right? We, we all get that. Or um, he, he was going to not live for the pleasures of sin, but he was going to live for the things that God valued. Now, sin is pleasurable for a season, it says. You know, it says right there in Scripture, it's pleasurable for a season, for a short time, because you can have your kicks, and there's always kickbacks, right? There's always consequences that are tied to our sins. And this is how Satan sucks us in, is that oftentimes we engage in sinful activity. We don't immediately experience the consequences, so he just kind of draws us in deeper, 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 until he has us entrapped, and then all of a sudden the consequences of our actions come cascading down, and now we're feeling the full weight of our sin. So yes, sin is fun. Yes, it's pleasurable to break the law. At least it was for me. It's pleasurable to do a lot of things. But if you get caught, you have to pay the price. 
The first time I got caught in an illegal activity, I had my mother's car. That car was impounded by the police department. They took me down to the station, made me call my mother, and my mother could not believe that I had been arrested. And in fact, she argued with me on the phone. Why are you? This is a joke. This is a trick. No, mom, I'm telling you, I'm at the police station. You got to come down here and get me out. And finally, the officer had to get on the phone to convince my mom that this was not a joke. Your son has been arrested and your car has been impounded. Consequences. My cousin was with me, and he had a dad at home, and my uncle could be, he could be harsh. At that moment, I was thinking, this is the one time in my life I, I think I believe I'm glad I don't have a father in my house. But my mom could whoop you like no other. No, that's another story. It says Moses, watch this, chose to be mistreated, to do Short-term pain for long-term gain. He did the right thing. God chose Moses as a baby, and then Moses chose God. Before you make some resolutions, sometimes you have to make some disillusions. There are some things you have to refuse to choose. And so when did Moses do this? Refusing and choosing. Notice what it says in verse 24. When he had grown up. You see, your ability to, to, to delay gratification is a mark of maturity. But it's important. Where do you need to accept responsibility? Who are you blaming for your unhappiness? Well, if I just had a different husband, if I just had a different wife, if I just had a different family, if I just had a different job, if I just had a different... And we, we just constantly are blaming everything and everyone for unhappiness... Listen, you are as happy as you choose to be because happiness is a choice. In fact, there's a book by that title that has been published by a group of psychologists. Right? So you, you are as happy as you want to be because happiness is a choice. You are really as happy as you choose to be because Happiness is a choice, and so being close to God is also a choice, right? You are as close to God right now as you choose to be. It's a choice. You have to set responsibility for that. God didn't move. He wants to be close to you, but you have to choose and accept responsibility for that relationship. So there's a lot of things in life about that. That way, right? You have to choose responsibility. I cannot keep, continue blaming other people for where I am in life and how happy I am or how successful I am or not. You cannot live off of someone else's spiritual commitment. You, you have to grow up in a, you may have grown up in a home where your parents love Jesus, but I'll tell you, your parents' commitment to Christ can, does not transfer to you. You only become close to Jesus because you have had experiences with him. In personal encounters, here's another area of responsibility. You can't blame others for the direction of your life. Listen, if your life sucks, it's because you've been allowing it to. We are the product of our past, but we don't have to be the prisoner of our past. People, listen, your past influences you. I get that, but it doesn't have to control you. Other people can hurt you, and they will, but they don't have to harm you. They don't have to derail your life forever. People will scar you, but they don't have to ruin you unless you allow them to do that. So here's the, the beauty behind this is I have to choose. Listen, life is going to bring with it pain. And I may have to endure some short-term pain, but on the long run, for the long term, it can also result in gain, right? There are some things I have to delay gratification-wise if I'm going to go where God wants me to go, if I'm going to do what God wants me to do. But here's the good news you're going to have pain in life, either now or later. Here's the two promises. First, it helps you to grow and deepen your faith. Romans 5, 3, and 4 says we can have joy in our troubles because we know that these troubles produce patience, and patience produces character, and character produces hope. 
What is God saying? He's more interested in your character than he is your comfort. And he knows that character is always formed in the painful events of life. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, that your faith is more precious than gold. Well, how do you, how do you refine gold? You refine gold through the fire. And Peter was saying, listen, we're all going to go through the fire, and whether or not that gold gets refined is really up to you. Are you going to allow God to do what it is he's doing through that refiner's fire? And secondly, God will reward you in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Notice he calls them light and temporary. But they're achieving something, right? You know, um, my son-in-law's dad just retired from Delta as an airline pilot. He'd been flying for them for, um, I think, like 40 years, Air Force for 10 years, um, maybe it's 35 years for Delta, 10 years in Air, in Air Force. And one of the things he talks about is that they're constantly training pilots in simulators. And the reason, they're putting them to the test. And so they'll set up scenarios where things go wrong on the plane to see how they react, to see if they can get that plane back under control or if they can go through the emergency procedures they need to go through. And why is this so important? It's, it's not that they're trying to flunk the pilots and fire them from their job. They just want to see, help the pilots to see where their deficiencies are because they have a plane that is loaded with hundreds of passengers and, it, and those passengers' lives are depending upon their ability to handle difficult situations. Right? God isn't punishing us because he allows us to go through the refiner's fire. He's simply bringing up to us the deficiencies in our lives, the things that need to be changed, the, the things that need to be tweaked so that we can become people who are responsible with the gospel. I mean, let's be honest. Over the last year, how many people have you actually shared your faith with? How many people have you even tried to disciple? Uh, that's not to make you feel guilty. It's just a fact of reality. And we'll give a thousand reasons as to why that hasn't taken place. But until we are willing to take responsibility and to go through some short-term pain, and that is prepare ourselves for those opportunities, to equip ourselves for those opportunities, then we'll never do it. And it'll just never happen. And the gospel stops with you. You've received the gift, and now it's like you're holding the gift, you're cradling the gift, but you're unwilling to share the gift. That's got to change. Number three, I, I choose what God values, not what the world values. Verse 26, it says that he regarded dis disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. That word regarded means to evaluate, to consider, to weigh. He's making a value judgment. He's clarifying what is most valuable, to be disgraced for the sake of Christ or to live for the treasures of Egypt? And so the question always begs to be asked, what are the most important values in your life? You may not even know what they are. It might be for you. You might say, well, it's integrity, it's humility, it's generosity, or maybe it's being liked, it's making a lot of money, it's having position, it's having power. You may, not, you may know what they are. You may not even know what they are. But even if you don't know what they are, I can assure you you're living your life according to those values, even though they may be un, you may be unaware of what they are. We all live according to our values. And Moses chose God's values over the world's values. Well, why is that so important? Because if you don't decide what's important in your life, other people will decide it for you. They will. Ties back to our identity. For some people, they, what they value the most is tied to whoever they're trying to impress the most. So you're allowing them to push and mold your mind around their values rather than what God values. So what does the world value? Listen, these, these three things are the same things the world has always valued throughout its history and every single advertisement is built on these three things. You find them in all three verses, popularity, pleasure, and possessions. That's what the world evolves around, popularity, pleasure, possessions. 
Or you could say sex, salary, and status. The Bible talks about it in terms of the lust of the flesh, the the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But we see all three of these as Moses faced these things, right? Popularity, you know, I'm I'm, I'm grandson to the Pharaoh. Is is that going to be the thing I value? Or the pleasures of sin, is that what I'm going to value? Or all the possessions that, that I could acquire? 1 John 2, 17 says, the world and everything in it is that in it that people desire is passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. In other words, Moses walked away from the very things that we spend our entire lives trying to acquire. That's amazing. We want the world's treasures. We want the world's pleasures. We want the measure of success. I mean, in the house of Pharaoh, he would have had it all. And so what John is telling us is the wise way to live is to choose what God values. So what does God value? God values this. God's purpose is more valuable than popularity. Again, he's Pharaoh's grandson. He's heir to the throne, eventually. He's celebrity status. He's like the playboy of his day and time, if he wants to be, if he chose to be. You know, I I don't know if you've understood, popularity is very fleeting, right? You ever gone back to your old high school? Like, you might have been the most popular person at a high school, but I guarantee if you go back three years later, they don't know who you are. Like, who who are you? Do you know that when you die... This is a sobering thought. When you die, you're only three generations from being forgotten. Three. That's it. I know my father. I knew my grandfather. I didn't know my great-grandfather. Never met the man. Didn't know anything about him. I, I heard some stories. Saw a few pictures. Didn't really mean anything. So, you know, when you spend that money to put that grave marker out there, guess what? Three generations later, ain't nobody going to be there looking at it. Your family members aren't going to be strolling by. You will be forgotten. That's a sobering thought. That's how popular you are. When people say, well, you know, I, I, I can't leave the world because the world would fall apart without me. My family would fall apart without me. Let me tell you, if you take a bucket of water and plunge your fist in it and pull it out as fast as you can, whatever indentation is left, that's how much you're going to be missed. The world does not stop because you and I exit this world. It just keeps on going. And so if I try to live my life for popularity, for fame, for fortune, I've got my ladder against the wrong wall. Because that is not what God values. God's purpose is more valuable than popularity. So don't waste your time trying to be popular. One of the purposes that God has given to us that's more valuable than popularity is sharing the gospel. Listen, when you share the gospel, you never know how it's going to impact somebody's life. In fact, you may not ever know until you get to heaven. And there might be a lot of people who walk up to you and say, you know what? You don't know this, but I observed you. I watched you. I heard you. I listened to you. I didn't receive Jesus then, but later on, man, I'll tell you what, when I got in a really hard place in my life, I knelt beside my bed and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, and I want to thank you because you were an example to me. I received an email last week from a young woman, and this was from my previous church, so this is over 22 years ago. I've been here 22 years, so it's beyond that, and she wrote the email, and she says, I just want you to know, um, I was a young single mother. I was enrolling in college. We had a community college across the street from our church there. And she said, um, I just felt impressed to, to go to your church. She says, I was, I was alone. I was angry with God. I came to your service. And lo and behold, what did I preach on? How it's okay to be angry with God. And so she stayed and kept coming back. We'd come on Wednesday nights, but then had to work another job. Couldn't come on Wednesday nights. Struggled being able to come. I kind of lost contact with her. And she says, you know what? Um, I found that you're live streaming on Facebook, and I was so excited. Every single week, she's on Facebook with us. She's watching this service. And see, you never know how you're influencing and impacting somebody's life until they're able to tell you. And I think a lot of that will be going on in heaven. Because I, I, I tell you what, there are people that I wanted to look up who have so influenced my life for the good because they were willing to be 
the bearers of the gospel. Number two, people are more valuable than pleasure. When Moses decided to live out his true identity and free the Hebrew slaves, needless to say, um, he would not be living in Pharaoh's palace. In fact, he lived as a fugitive for a long time. He trades his royal lifestyle in order to help the neediest people he knew, which were the slaves, right? The Hebrew slaves, because he knew that people are more valuable than pleasure. You see, if I spend all my life living for pleasure, I'll never have time for people. You know, it's easy to sit and binge watch something on Netflix, you know, 30 seasons of such and such. But that takes up an enormous amount of time, and that means I'm spending a lot of time on a pleasure, but I'm neglecting the people who are in need of Christ and who are so valuable and precious to God, and he's waiting for us to bring the gospel to them. Every time, and I'm not, you know, downing you if you binge watch, okay? I'm just simply trying to get you to see that every time you give to the Lord's work, you're making that decision that people are valuable. They're more valuable than anything else, more valuable than my pleasure. You know, there are a lot of things I could buy. There are a lot of things I could do with the money that I give away to the Lord's work. I mean, we, we support missionaries. The reason we support our IMB missionaries is because people are far more valuable than the pleasures of life. And so I have not been called out on the mission field. You have not been called out on the mission field. They have. We support them. We pray for them. They're able to do what they do, bringing the gospel to bear to people groups who have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ because they are all precious in God's eyes. Every time you give to this church and you help support its ministries, my wife and I support a young lady who is on the University of Cincinnati campus. She, she uh, works for the Navigators. They have, to, they have to raise all their own support. She's been there for many, many years. We've supported her for many years. Why? Because she leads young women to Christ and she disciples the community. And our doc equips them to be leaders and sends them back out into the community. And our daughter is one of those who experienced that. She was a young college girl trying to find herself. She was taken in, not by this girl who, who's doing it now because she was her roommate, but by someone else who did it before her and discipled her and raised her up and equipped her as a leader. And now she is the women's director of a church in North Carolina that's some 10,000 members on, a, on one of their specific campuses. Why? Because somebody set aside their pleasure long enough to take the time and spend it upon her. You think she's going to look her up in heaven and say, thank you for all that you've done for me? You better believe it. You see, when you sacrifice your time working in this church, every time those of you who you give and you serve, and, and, I, and you serve well and you serve long and you serve hard, we're giving up pleasures, right? So it would be easier to say, you know what, I just don't want to do that. I want to be involved. I don't want to do anything. I just want to come to service and go home and, and not be involved in ministry and not be involved in people's lives. And that's all fine and well, but who's going to take the gospel to those who are in need? Peace of mind is more valuable than possessions. We're going to wrap this up couple minutes here. Where do you get your peace of mind? It's by doing the will of God. Advertisements will tell you you can buy peace of mind, but you can't. You can buy a lot of things. I know people who have spent their entire life and a lot of money and time on possessions that they have collected all through the years. My mom got into Beanie Babies. I mean, collected Beanie Babies like, no. And, you know, and people, you know, People do this. They collect all kinds of stuff, and they're thinking to themselves, man, when I die, I'm going to leave this to my family, and it's going to be a grand inheritance for them, and this is my legacy. And you know what happens when the kids get it? We don't want this stuff. What are we going to do with it? And so it ends up getting sold in a yard sale or sold at auction, or it finds its way into the dump, right? Because possessions just, they just don't do that for it. That doesn't bring us peace of mind. Stuff can't bring us peace of mind. Possessions don't give us ultimate pleasure, and they certainly cannot give us this peace of mind, God, doing God's will. So Moses gave up what everybody else spends their lives trying to get, success, fame, power, money, because people were more valuable than pleasure, peace of mind more valuable than possessions, and purpose more valuable than popularity. And here's the last one. I choose to live by faith rather than by fear. 
it says that Moses, I love this, by faith left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. His eyes were on Jesus. He wasn't going to allow his fear to stop him. You think Moses had some fear? He walks into the throne room of the most powerful man known to that day and time and says, no more free labor from these slaves. They're my people. I'm taking them out of here. You think he had a little fear? I'm sure he was quaking in his boots. But he didn't allow the fear to stop him from doing what it is God called him to do. See, fear is not one of the number one reasons why we don't share the gospel, why we don't disciple people. It's like, oh, but I'm afraid. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I, what, you know, what if I send them to hell number two instead of hell number one? You know, I, I don't know how we think, but, uh, you know, I don't know enough to disciple somebody. Listen, if you know more than they know, then you know enough. How can you go to tw- church for 20, 30 years and not know enough? You, you know enough. You just need to step out in faith and do it. And the way you see the size of your God is the way that you live your faith. It's the way you live your faith. When you put your faith, what you put, who you put your faith in obviously makes all the difference in the world. And God has given us this gift. This has been my whole desire during this series. My prayer is that through God's giving the gift of Jesus, that we would come to behold just in a slight way the magnitude of God's love, the magnitude of God's sacrifice on our behalf so that we would have a desire, not because God is promising us something, not because God is, you know, like, God has handed, like, I'm, I'm going to punish you if you don't do this. No, no, that we would just have this desire to be faithful to the gospel because of what the gospel means to us. Now, there's one of three ways you can respond. You can respond like Jonah. Here am I. I'm not going. Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. I ain't going. I'm heading the opposite direction. Or you can be like Moses early on. Here am I. Send somebody else. I don't speak well, I stutter, I've got all these deformities and deficiencies, I cannot do this task, and God said, oh, yes, you can. Or we can be like Isaiah and eventually Moses, here am I, send me. And the reason why we need to be sent is because every follower of Jesus is to leverage his or her life for the Great Commission. Again, God may not call you out into Vocational ministry probably will not. But this calling on our lives to share the gospel does not come to us in some, in, you know, like supernatural manifestation. In other words, I wasn't eating my Cheerios one day and God spelled out, hey, Greg, you need to become a pastor. Never happened, right? But the Holy Spirit begins moving in your, and stirring in your heart as to what it is he wants to do and how he wants to use you in order to forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, when this life is all said and done, your parents, your co-workers, your spouse, they're not going to be the ones who are standing in heaven welcoming you there. And then it's not their throne to which you're going to bow and worship the person sitting on that throne. It's Jesus. Jesus welcomes us into our heavenly home. It is Jesus who is sitting upon the throne. It is at his throne at which I will bow and my tongue will confess that he is Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And it is at his throne that I will take the crown that he has given to me as a reward for the deeds done on earth and it will cast it at his feet because he is the reason and the only reason I made it there. And I want to take as many people with me as I can. So let's pray. Father, as we begin this new year, we we do not want to drift through the year or for the rest of our lives. We want to move forward with a sense of, of direction and a sense of purpose. So today, like Moses, we want to commit to these four life-changing revolu- resolutions in our in our own personal lives that With your help, oh God, that we will resolve to not let other people define us. We we want to be exactly who and what you have created us to be and to do. 
Secondly, we resolve to choose short-term pain over long-term gain. Father, we know that in our heart of hearts, there may be some things that we have to say no to. There may be some things that we just can no longer be involved in for the sake of the gospel and those who are outside the realm of your kingdom. Father, we resolve for the rest of our lives to live by what you value and not what the world values. People are what you value the most. You created us not for time, but you created us for eternity. And it's the only thing on this earth that's going to last forever. Our people. God, may you develop a desire within us to step out in faith and not living by fear to bring the gospel to bear on the relationships that we have. Father, we realize that it is only by your grace and power that we can keep these commitments. So Jesus, we put our total faith in you starting today. We ask you to empower us, to guide us. Father, we'll stop making excuses but seek you and support the support of others as we engage in our commission. Father, I pray for those who are listening online or who may be here who have never engaged in a personal relationship with Christ on their own. Would I pray, Holy Spirit, right now will draw them to Christ, the gift, the gift that is eternal, the gift that is life-changing, the gift that is course-altering, one gift that we never knew we needed may they discover it take hold of it by faith and come to the realization it's the one gift they've been searching for all of their lives Jesus powerful name of Jesus we pray this in faith in the mighty name of Jesus we ask all these things Thanks.